Hello, and welcome back to O'Neill & Associates Federal Insight, a podcast of OA On Air. This week, we had the pleasure of virtually sitting down with Steve Kerrigan, a longtime Massachusetts politico who is currently president and CEO of the Edward M. Kennedy Community Health Center. Founded in a Worcester housing project in 1972, Kennedy Community Health today has three medical facilities, two dental sites, two optometry practices, and six school-based centers serving residents of Worcester, Framingham, Milford, and the surrounding communities of Metro West and Central Massachusetts. Currently, over 26,000 patients of all ages receive care and services through the Kennedy Community Health Family Practice Model of Care, a comprehensive approach to the delivery of quality primary and urgent care. In addition to his current job, Many will know Steve for his work in national and state politics, having served as the CEO of the 2012 Democratic National Convention Committee, 2013 Presidential Inaugural Committee, as well as Chief of Staff for President Obama's 2009 Presidential Inaugural Committee and Chief of Staff of Boston's Host Committee at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. In 2014, Steve was a Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. For over 10 years, Steve worked for Senator Kennedy, serving as an intern, scheduler, constituent services director, and his longest position as the senator's political director. He remained a trusted advisor to the senator in and outside of government for over two decades. Please enjoy our conversation with Steve Kerrigan. Good morning. <laughs> Good great morning. to have uh, great to have my dear friend Steve Kerrigan with us this morning. Steve and I have been friends, uh, well, I'm as old as dirt, so I would say 30 plus years and okay. um, with a, a great tie and that, well, multiple ties, but one tie is that um, Steve, as you know, worked for Senator Kennedy and uh, I was very fortunate to spend years and years and years working with Senator Kennedy on a variety of issues, no shortage. <laughs> and, and, and then over time, uh, Steve became friends with my spouse and I became friends with his spouse. So we are really uh, family connected now after all these years in many ways. Absolutely. And, um, and not, has, not only a fan of John's, but I'm also, I'm a, a bigger fan of Sarah's and of his sons who are absolutely the best uh, in the business. Yeah, very kind. I'll keep, I'll keep. How much I hired out of them at one point. So that's, that's how much I like them. Yeah, no, you, there's, there's at least one out of the two whose career you launched, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. and he's still, and he's still rolling along, you know. I know, I know, well, God bless him, we need him there, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, we, wow. we do, um, so Jen, go ahead with uh, the brief yeah, sure. of the Edward Kennedy Center and the sundry number of things we're going to talk about, including, as I like to call it, the gavel story. Yeah, uh. oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, well, maybe we should start there. I don't know. That's a great intro. I think uh, Steve has, you know, obviously you have quite a, um, a long history in Massachusetts politics. And I think um, obviously John has said that you've known each other for a long time. Would love to hear more about your, um, your start with the uh, Senator Kennedy's offices and how that has kind of led you now to having this uh, role where you are leading the uh, Community Health Center in his name. Sure. So I started uh, in Senator Kennedy's office as a one semester intern my freshman year in college. I was still 17. 
Uh, and I was doing it because I was going to become a monk, which is a much longer topic for a podcast much later. Um, uh, and I wanted to get politics out of my system. I thought it was kind of interesting and I'd, I'd try it out. So I did this, the one semester internship, which led to four years in his office uh, while in college and then uh, 10 years after that uh, working for him. And he was one of those guys, as John knows, who was who was sort of um, addicted, like you, you sort of got addicted to helping him or working alongside him or trying to fix something with him. And so every challenge, every time I thought I was done, they'd give me a new challenge and I would dive head, uh, straight into it and three years would go by and more of my life would have gone by. But I would have learned an awful lot more, uh, which is, was, uh, was really exciting. And, and so when I left his office um, back in 03, I think, I, I came to Boston, uh, I ran as chief of staff for the, for the Democratic Convention here and then, and then on. Uh, I had great opportunities in my career to, um, to work with a lot of really fantastic leaders um, uh, and then to lead uh, organizations myself, the Attorney General's Office, um, uh, the, the two national uh, conventions, uh, the uh, two presidential inaugurations, um, and really had a chance to see um, what it's like to, to uh, lead diverse types of organizations and large, large squads. So when I was recruited for this job, uh, back in early 2019, I thought it was a joke, to be honest, because I'd never worked in healthcare in my entire life. I mean, it really, like, I, my whole career had been, for like 15 years, had been Ted Kennedy focused. And so this was years later, and someone said, oh, you should run the Kennedy Community Health Center. I was like, that's ridiculous. I don't know why they're running a health center. Uh, and, uh, but I, they kept hounding me and hounding me. And they were good friends of both um, John and I who, were, who had come after me for this thing. And I said, fine, fine, fine. So I put my resume in thinking I was a curiosity for the, for the search team. Uh, and then it just kept going along the whole way. Uh, and at one point I said, you know what? I think I could, you know, take the experience I learned starting in the center's office all the way through and actually help this place. Uh, and, uh, and then behold, I got the job and uh, it was a bit of a homecoming. And I love it because uh, I get on a regular basis to talk to the people who work at the Edward M. Kennedy Community Health Center about Edward M. Kennedy, the man, because to, to them, he's like a figure in history, might as well be James Madison. And it's fun to go to work every day, they work incredibly hard and they work every day to bring to life his goal, which was always to provide healthcare to everybody as a right and not a privilege. And so whether they know it or not, um, they're living his legacy every day. So it's really, um, it was a strange, long, strange trip indeed to get to this yeah. job, but, but I'm yeah. thrilled to be here. Yeah. How cool though, that you really just started, it's an internship. I really wanna have this experience before another career path focused on and now look where you are now. Maybe you didn't have a healthcare background, but certainly all those skills like organizing large people. Yeah. Okay, what is your issue? Okay, I know who we need to talk to. We'll get you in front right. of that. That's a really nice, you know, sentiment for the interns of now to realize that that experience is so vital into anything that you do going forward, I think. It is, I, so I, anytime anybody asks me to talk to an intern or someone had been an intern or office or whatever, or an intern, I, I'll take it any day of the week and twice on Sunday because internships, I think, give you a chance. Like for me, it opened the door to stuff I didn't know was possible. I was like, my parents are both union members. They both passed now, but my mom was a school secretary. My dad climbed light poles uh, for 30 years from Mass Electric. The idea of working for Ted Kennedy was never in my mindscape. Uh, and, but this internship gave me a chance to like sort of peek into that world. Uh, and then they saw who I was as a worker and, and uh, how committed I was. And they just kept giving me more and more opportunities. So I always tell interns, even when I, I did a stint at the Kennedy School at Harvard, I used to tell all the students that um, were sad enough to come to my classes, I would tell them, be the Harvard student who's willing to make photocopies. Be the Harvard student who's willing yeah. to get a cup of coffee. Yeah. Be the Harvard student who's willing to do anything. Don't just 
graduate from Harvard and think you're going to write the Patients Bill of Rights. Like be the Harvard student who's willing to do absolutely anything uh, and it'll serve you well um, uh, in your lifetime for sure. Wow, yeah. very cool. So, very so, cool. You know, as a footnote to that, I had a similar experience, as you know, with Speaker O'Neill. Right. And yeah, it was very, very much the same. And uh, last thing I imagined, I was at Hopkins Graduate School and I was kind of getting a little burned out with the research assignments and all that. And uh, and just and and was always political anyway since I was very young and so I thought I, I got to get to the hill here, and I spent days and days and weeks and weeks trying to get there and and even with even with phone calls right, as you can right. imagine, and you know none of it worked. And then one day I get a note from um, the person in charge of Mr. O'Neill's office, Speaker O'Neill's office, said we'd like you to come up and uh, try an internship with us for about three months or whatever it was, four months. And that's that's how it started. And as a great friend of mine said, I don't know, years later, you know, all that Xeroxing you did really paid off. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It, I tell you, it's the, and I tell this to people who want to move to Washington, and there's a lot of folks who worked on the Biden campaign, and I was a big Biden supporter uh, early on. And people are saying, how do I get a job in, in Washington? And I said, look, I used to always tell people, if you're a young person who wants to get a job in Washington, go there, go there, get an internship, wait tables, work. I worked at Schneider's Liquor Store on Capitol Hill um, for a couple of years. Uh, get an internship, work, and you'll the, the people you'll meet will lead you to some opportunities uh, where you can also figure out, you might think as a headstrong 22 year old that you know exactly what you want to do when you get to Washington. You, you probably have no idea what you want to do okay. or where your path is going to lead. So I always tell people you can afford it, find somebody's couch and, uh, and just get down there and, uh, and dig yeah. in it's really, and do anything that they ask you to do. Well, yeah. to continue with the internship theme, I'll tell my quick story because it's a great yeah. segue to, I think, the story, John, you wanted to tell about the gavel. Okay. But well, I, actually, Steve I... is going to tell the story, but oh, okay. I'll just testify to it. I'll testify to it. <laughs> I remember when Mayor Menino announced that Boston was going to be the host for the DNC in 04. And I thought, oh, I really want to go to that. That sounds like an amazing, awesome party opportunity. Really cool. And so I went and saw who was running for president. And obviously everyone was talking about, you know, um, Howard Dean and all these folks. But I saw that my Senator John Kerry happened to have his campaign offices. I was at Emanuel College down the street. I went and got a suit, put it on, went down there and interviewed. This was August of 03. So like not necessarily the highlight for the senator. And I went down there and said. But it was down about, about all of the points. About he was that little like, like that little like, you know, blur with the head behind, of the I remember saying this. He was behind Al Sharpton uh, in national polls when yeah. he announced in September. It was like the worst time to go work on this campaign. Nobody wanted to work there. And I got there and said, great, can you start? Can you help answer the phones? And can you can you go help on. with all of this? Can you go over here? If, and the, I phone, if the phone I, rings. If the yeah. phone rings. Well, when the phone rang, everyone was like, what are you doing there? Your guy's not going to win. And so it was so awful. And um, I remember that January going back to school and they said, look, at it. we've got a bus going of a bunch of veterans and a couple spots for students. Do you want to go? And I called my parents and I said, I will go back to school. I'm just going to wait a week and I'm going to go to Iowa uh, on this bus. And they thought I was crazy, but I figured this is the way to kind of end this experience. Right. And then we were there and I was in Iowa city and I had a couple caucus locations in like a church basement in the middle of nowhere with MacQuest and not a real cell phone. Like there wasn't an iPhone. It was like a flip phone with no service. 
And I remember calling a number, a 202 number, being calling it into DC, what my uh, results were. And I said, how are we doing? I said, we're going to win. And he won. We came, okay. nobody thought, nobody thought. So from there, I came well, back. I thought it I was a firm believer. I was a firm <laughs> believer that he was going to win. Honestly, <laughs> once, he put, once he put Michael Hooley and Michael Hooley's team in Iowa, I was like, well, I, you know, he's going to, he'll, he'll, he'll eke this one out. Um, my mother was terrified because there was a bit of a, a, um, conflict at times between our two offices and uh my mother used she was panic stricken she kept saying to me the president of the united states is going to hate you and i was like no we get along fine now um everything is great and we do get along fine uh i actually adore john Kerry, and i think he would have been a fantastic president but uh, i do too it worked out i guess but um anyways i still got to go to the convention i was on the finance team at that point and um like you said i worked there that summer I was waitressing and babysitting to be able to work this other job that was 40 hours not being paid. But I'm telling you, that was the most amazing experience. And I still remember all the details of that and have all the, the photos. It was an incredible experience. So that that convention is where the story that I'm going to tell you comes from, or at least the announcement of the convention. The announcement. So, yep. Yeah, the announcement of the convention. So Senator Kennedy very much wanted the convention in Boston uh, in 2004 and worked I was his national political director when we were bidding for it. And so our job was to put together a bid that the DNC couldn't say um, no to. Terry McAuliffe was the chair at the time. Uh, Terry had been asked to go out to LA uh, in 2000 to help save that convention because they didn't raise enough money. And so his only thing to us was raise enough money and we might be able to get it to you. So long story short, we raised a lot of money um, prior to getting the bid and we got it. And there's a lot of other funny stories I'll tell you uh, over a glass of wine sometime about, um, about the whole process. But uh, Kennedy um, was a big gift giver, loved giving gifts and wanted to really have a, that, that rattle is my dog, sorry. Um, he wanted to give Terry McAuliffe a gift at the DNC meeting in November or December when we announced the, the city. And so he said to me the night before, he was also a big, you know, pop something on you at the last second and then you have to deliver on it. Um, see, told you. Um, and uh, well, he wants to hear the uh, gavel. He wants to hear the story. He hasn't heard this one yet, right, Coop? Um, uh, so he said to me the night before, he said, Oh, hey, uh, I have a gavel that comes from timbers uh, of the USS Constitution. He said, I'd like to um, give that to Terry McAuliffe at the thing as a gavel to say you can use this to gavel in the convention when it comes to Boston in two years. And I was like, Okay. I was like, do you want to actually give it to him? He said, no, no, we'll have them make them because they make them as mementos and stuff with old planks. I was like, great. So I said, do you know where it is? And he said, I have no idea. So we, uh, we called someone at the Cape. They looked there. We looked in the campaign office. We looked at his house in Washington. We scoured for like, I don't know, hours looking for this gavel. He had a gavel on his desk, but it turned out it wasn't, it wasn't that one. Looking and looking and looking. So I called him at like, I don't know, eight o'clock at night. And I said, Senator, and the next thing is like nine o'clock in the morning. And I said, Senator, I can't, we can't find the gavel. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and I called the Constitution. They could have one made, but it won't be made for a few weeks. He's like, that's no good, no good, no good. And he's like, wait a second. He said, Tip was with me um, at the at the event that I got the gavel. And I said, Tip O'Neill? He said, yeah. He said, he said he has a gavel. I was like, well, he, I mean, he, he passed away quite a while ago. So I don't really know that I have access to Tip O'Neill's gavel. Uh, and so... He said, no, 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 he hasn't. So uh, I called, I think I called John, I called Shelly, I called, I tried to reach Tommy. I finally, Shelly finally says to me, she, she was coming to Washington. I think you were coming too, John, weren't you both? Yes, I was. Yep, yeah. yep. Uh, 
So one of them went to the office. I just begged them. I said, please, do you know where it is? And they said, oh, yeah, it's on Tommy's desk. <laughs> I don't need associates. I was like, great. And he was like somewhere unreachable. I'm like, can you just go get it? Wrap it up and bring it to Washington. And they, they took an earlier flight than they were going to. They got on like a 6 a.m. flight or 7 a.m. flight, went straight to the, to the hotel. I got the package yeah. from them. And we give, so Kennedy's all excited, he's thrilled. He gives the gavel to Terry McAuliffe in the press conference and everybody's like going bananas. Now, no one says, hey, Steve, great job. Like somehow you <laughs> manifested this gavel out of nowhere. And then McAuliffe's body guy takes the gavel, just yeah. leaves. And I was, like, <laughs> I was like, hey, that's not that's not your gavel. And he's like, well, yeah, the senator just gave it to him. And I was like, no, no, it's Speaker O'Neill's gavel. I need to get that gavel back. We'll get you another gavel. And he said, how about I give this back to you when you give me the other one? I'm like, how about give me the, like, <laughs> welcome to Boston. Give me the gavel back, will you? Um, so yeah, I almost kneecapped him with the gavel. But we got it back. And I, we got it back. Poor Shelly, I think, was shaking. Like, she was like, oh, my God, where's the gavel going to go? But yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, that was one of those moments. Kennedy would always say, geez, you know, could you? do this thing and then it would take like you know nine thousand steps like move the moon to the left and you'd be like sure of course okay, we'll we'll figure out a way to do it but the the gavel story was a good one yeah yeah wow well Thank he never doubted you <laughs> but it was yeah it was one of those things that like um he senator the senator would do anything for anybody and so when he asked you to figure out a way to do it it's fine and so i i starting with him so young i never knew how absurd some of my requests were so i can only imagine how ridiculous it sounded to john and shelly to be like hey you know that priceless thing that you probably never get another of um could you get it wrap it and bring it to washington and give it to me so i can give it to a stranger that'd be great yeah. um but they did it <laughs> so that was we're a little off the uh, community oh, health sorry. center thing, but, but, yes, we are. but no, no, but no, that's okay. Cause I was going <laughs> to say, I was at a um, RFK event with him on the Cape and the crew. And, and he says to me, the, you know, there was dancing or whatever. So we're talking and he says to me, he said, you know, there's a house in Winthrop. I'd really, really appreciate it if you could find it. It's on shore drive, da, 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 whatever. And I'm like, okay. And you probably know this, but I, I said, okay, so the significance of this house, let me guess, right. is that it, it was the family house in Winthrop. Yeah. And he said, yes. And he said, I think it was yellow. <laughs> okay. All right. So it might have been yellow in 1920. <laughs> so, uh, so the absurdity of the thing was that I knew the, uh, the, the town manager and uh, God rest him, Marie Turner, who went on to be a select person. And I called her, I said, okay, house, Shore Drive, Kennedy family, and, and, and I, you know, this is how weird things are. Out of the blue, she says, I know where that is. I know, I know where it is. She said, I think I even know the family that's in the house. So the story goes that he wants to go out to the house. I mean, that's the point, right? Oh, okay. yep. And so I meet him in Revere or something and we get in the car and we drive over and uh, the whole, this, family is there who bought the house probably in the 60s or something and they have every member of their family in the living room okay the kids are all in jammies or whatever i mean it's a whole thing going on and they had this very very large massive portrait of the boston latin school baseball team from like 1900 1901 and of course the right captain you, them, huh right after you were there right after i was there and of course, the captain of the team was Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., yeah. right? Um, so, so they have this, 
And they're, but the thing is, they found it in the attic of the house. No. It, the attic of the house. I'm surprised but that they were sunk. But they weren't presenting it to the senator. They just wanted him to see it. Okay, he left this. Well, that's nice. So he says to me, he says to me, let's go out on the porch. Out the back, we go out on the back porch just to you know move off. And he and he proceeds to tell me the significance of the house in the sense that his father, uh, his father bought it for his grandfather, Patrick. And those are the days where if you wanted to buy a house in Hull or Hingham and your name was Kennedy, there was no chance that no chance. was gonna happen. No None. chance. So his answer to it was he bought this house on the water in Winthrop and uh, it stayed in the family. The Burks ended up with it later yep. and it stayed in the family, you know, for 40 years, I guess, something like 40 years till one of the Burks moved to Florida or whatever happened. Yeah. But anyway, he's telling me this whole thing. And he, and he says, you know, my brother swam off of here when he was like five years old, six years old. And that would be President, President Kennedy. Yeah. 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 So he had, I might. I, he has I, a ridiculous memory. Ridic yeah. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. We this is totally off topic, but uh, we went to Windsor Castle in 2000. I went on a trip with he and Vicky the day after the election in 2000. We went to Windsor Castle and uh, Her Majesty's librarian gave us a tour. It was a, a fantastic thing. And he took us to this one room and he said, I was instructed to take you to this one room. Now, this is a man who's lived there for 10 years. He said, I've never been in this room. Uh, so I don't know anything about it, but I'm told you should go into this room. So we went in and we walked around and he was, this two year 2000. So he's seven, uh, I don't know, 68, something like that, 68. He wandered around and he looks and he looks out a window to like a patio. And he said, did they used to have strawberry festivals here? And the, the librarian gets this huge grin across his face. Uh, and he said, well, I'm told they did, yes. And he's looking very sheepish. And the Senator said, I danced with Princess Margaret right there outside that window uh, when we were all little kids and uh, my dad was ambassador and their dad was um, was yeah. king. And I was like, how do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta remember what I had for dinner. And he would have a keen memory of like random things. And the guy just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I guess Her Majesty had told him specifically because she remembered it too, to take him to that room. To amazing. That was amazing. amazing. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but my last, but John, I need to know, did you have to go in and get that picture back for him or the baseball no, line? I, sure they no, tried. He was, he was willing to, he was willing to get back in the car without the massive painting. Oh. Um, it was just I'm surprised. Couldn't have figured out how to transport it anyway. So it's just right. as If you had a Suburban, it would have been a different story. It was a different story. That thing would have been on the back of the truck. You know? <laughs> oh my um, Anyway. Oh, we could go on. <laughs> we could oh, yeah. go on. I would just like to give the opportunity that we have here with you um, to talk a little bit about what's happening today, which is not much, but um, certainly a number of things on the congressional schedule that should be getting wrapped up in the next couple of weeks. Um, obviously, infrastructure is basically done. It's just being used as an opportunity to leverage for budget reconciliation. Um, knowing that we were going to be speaking with you, I did look up. It turns out, according to a National Association of Community Health Centers June report this year, they shared that 97% of community health centers have at least one capital project planned, either to build, expand, renovate their facilities, all in an effort to take care of more patients. Yeah. Um, and the top plan projects would expand medical services, net mental health, oral services to patients. So as Congress is still negotiating this top line number, 
um, which would be the largest expansion of social services in decades. The current draft of the bill includes 10 billion for community health center capital funding, as well as obviously proposed expansion of health services, vision and dental benefits, the cost yeah. of around 350 billion. But when we're talking trillions, really, what is that? Um, <laughs> how do you see this hopefully playing out and what is the impact you know, for your health center and, and in general and what else is kind of on the line maybe that needs to be um, considered in the public space in budget reconciliation? So it's a great question. And I would say we, I said at the beginning of the pandemic, I said to my colleague, my colleague CEOs of health centers um, that this was gonna be our moment. Like, right, this, the way we met this moment was gonna define community health centers for the next few decades. Uh, because I firmly believe that community health centers uh, are such a critical part of the healthcare delivery system. And for too long, we've been, you know, begging for scraps off the table and just trying to get our rates increased or trying to get stabilized. But when I first started, we were we hadn't had stable funding from the federal government in years. We were just begging for even yeah. flat numbers for a few years in a row so we could depend on them for budgeting. Um, because of, frankly, the investment, uh, because of the pandemic, the investment that Congress has given us over the last few years, we and the, the pivot to allow us to do telehealth was critical. Mm -hmm. They have done a lot to invest in us, but at the same time, we have shown them exactly what I thought we would, which is, but for us, uh, the healthcare delivery system would have collapsed in the first few months of the pandemic. I mean, we health centers take care of 29 million Americans uh, each and every uh, year. 29 million Americans lost their healthcare due to job loss in the first month after the pandemic started. So we would have, had we not been there for the first 29, you would have doubled the um, exposed uh, population out there in desperate need of, of critical care. And our health center was founded by seven uh, brave moms who just were tired of sending their kids to the emergency room for healthcare. So they hired a nurse and put her in a, in a bedroom in a public housing apartment and started seeing patients. But that's what we do, right? We keep people out of the ER, we keep people out of crowding hospitals, and we provide high quality uh, care uh, for people who need it regardless of their ability to pay. So all that um, table setting um, is to say um, the $10 billion in infrastructure investment for us is a fantastic start, um, uh, but we'll take it and we need it. Um, like for, I, I had a conversation, first of all, yesterday morning, we announced a capital campaign for a new building we're building in Milford, which will triple our size of, in Milford and double our primary care capacity. We'll add optometry, it'll add dental, uh, which we currently don't have in that community. It'll add an expanded behavioral health, a pharmacy, we also bought a building in Worcester because we're at our seams in Worcester for primary care. So it'll allow us to expand our primary care there. My job as a CEO is to find ways to increase access to high quality care for folks who need it. And these investments will allow folks like myself to do just that, to look around the corner and see what investments we can make in the future in our people, but also in our infrastructure. That's the first thing that goes uh, when budgets get tight is thinking about the future. It's all about trying to hold on. And the investments that Congress and I will say, uh, Jim McGovern, Catherine Clark, um, and and, and uh, uh, Senator Markey and Senator Warren have done fantastic to invest in our communities uh, during the, the difficult times and the president's certainly the uh, American Rescue Plan was fantastic. But this is where the rubber hits the road because this is gonna set stuff forward in the in budget processing and planning uh, moving forward from an infrastructure piece, it is going to be absolute game changer. Just as much as the uh, the ARPA money was game changing um, to get the amount of money that each health center got, um, this will be it too. But it can't just be infrastructure. It has to also be related to rates 
how we get compensated, what we get compensated for. And, and I, I've been uh, singing this song now for a while. Um, the, the, what we get paid for and the rates we're allowed to bill need to include the intangible things of interpretive services, community health workers who sit with our patients and talk to them about you know, whether they're food insecure or they might be uh, housing unstable. Because those components, those social determinants of health impact the person's long-term health, which by the way, then impacts the total cost of care and then the total burden on the healthcare system. And uh, I know our members of Congress get this, but we spend a million dollars a year at our health centers in interpretive services, a million dollars outside, outside of our interpreters that we pay. But 92 languages are spoken in our health centers and uh, in, in just the Kennedy Community Health Centers. And so we need to pay that because uh, it, otherwise we're not able to provide culturally competent care to these people. And I, I said this yesterday to somebody, and it might be too much, but I'll repeat it now. Um, not finding a way to allow us to be reimbursed for interpretive services is basically racist, um, or at least culturally, like you're saying, if you speak English, then this is the rate for you. If, if I wanna care for someone who does not speak English, I then have to find a million dollars a year to pay for interpretive services. Everyone, there needs to be health equity across uh, the board. Health centers have always been a huge part in that, but I think that is the next, as the state is finally correcting 20 years of woes on our rates uh, relative to Medicaid and, and mass health, uh, and the federal government is finally investing in us in a real way from an infrastructural uh, point of view and a reimbursement side, this is sort of the next horizon. And for me, I, I've put our federal delegation on warning that this is going to be like my next um, quest uh, mm -hmm. is going to be to make sure that that reimbursement uh, is comprehensive. And we're going to be moving in Massachusetts to primary care capitation probably in, in 2023. And so before we get to that, we need to make sure that inside that uh, rate and inside the cost of caring for somebody is the true cost of caring and not just, you know, the cost of a clinical um, visit. Um, answer, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, sure. I think you're right. It is just uh, starting to starting the conversation, and it's a nice, you know, it's needed, but certainly it's just beginning to touch the surface yeah. of of what you're needing or what you're going to be able to achieve. Wow, yeah. John, I don't know if you have any thoughts on what what the next steps will be in Congress as far as the top line number and the cost and the the chopping block is a lot of these social services, right? And the cost of that and, and how, and this is a loaded question, but I mean, how are they going to come to some nexus where they can all agree on that? I don't think everyone's gonna be pleased, but there'll be something. No, clearly not everyone's gonna be pleased. Some people are gonna be very, very unpleased. I, I do think th this thing has been slow to evolve, hasn't it, over the last months? And it, it could have moved more quickly particularly now where you look and see that there are folks saying, okay, categorically, we're gonna to have to reduce in this category, or we're mm -hmm. gonna to have to abbreviate and institute a five-year program instead of a 10-year program. You know, all these kinds of compromises that would have been apparent three months ago, really, if, if you reject the 3.5 trillion figure and you need to get to one nine, how are you gonna do it? Well, you're gonna reduce the number of years, you're gonna reduce the categorical funding, you're going to have means-tested approaches, you know, on and on. And and interesting this morning, I saw that that the now both sides are talking about okay, we're going to propose to keep programs, but we're going to have a four-year implementation or a five-year implementation. So I guess what I'm saying is, clearly there's been progress despite 
you know, comments by certain members that are really inflammatory. But despite that, on the on the ground level, there clearly has been movement to say, we're going to do something very significant here. It just is not going to be that. It's going to be something else, going to be this with reductions. The other thing I saw, and we've in my gang, we've been talking about this for weeks. You know, this is the first bite of reconciliation in 21. You do get to do reconciliation again in 22, right? See, now even he was upset with that. Set up a Congress. Set up a Congress. You know. um, so if you get, so the way to look at it is get this done and then look at the pieces that were unfinished and take them up in 22 if you can. And as usual in our world, you need the votes. So figure out what, what can you get to get to another additional number next year, you know? And so you get, anyway, my point, bites at the apple, bites at the apple. Uh, and I gotta tell you, I think that they'll get there. It's just not gonna be tomorrow. It's gonna be, I don't know, November or something. Yeah, it's, so, I, you know, I think back to, I'm very, Frustrated with Congress in general. I, it's I'm Barney Frank used to always say, uh, people hate government in general, but love it in specific. Um, I, I'm very unhappy with uh, Congress in general, but I love our members of Congress in specific who are yeah. supportive. But, uh, it, it is. I mean, I remember the days. I remember the Clinton healthcare bill, uh, and we worked on that for I don't know two years or eighteen months, um, and went down the line with it, uh, and it failed um, in a procedural vote in August or September of '94. Uh, and I remember Senator Kennedy walked back to the office from the floor after that vote. And we thought, oh, he's going to be totally dejected. And, you know, this is going to be terrible. And he picked up, didn't even go into his office, reached over, picked up his assistant's phone and called uh, Nancy Kassebaum, Republican from Kansas, and said, Nancy, now that this is over, like, we've got to at least get portability of health care and pre-existing conditions covered. And so they put together that piece of, of legislation and just started chipping away at it and did um, Patients Bill of Rights stuff, did the CHIP program for children a few years later. Um, nobody these days is thinking about, uh, at least not publicly, uh, they feel like any expression of compromise is a weakness rather than um, getting that half a loaf that we, I mean, Mr. O'Neill was was uh, legendary at, and so was Senator Kennedy. And I, you know, I, I feel like that's the world Joe Biden grew up in. and. Uh, wants to get there. There are, there are too many absolutists uh, in, in Congress these days. And as I always say, absolutism in politics is absolutely the worst thing uh, because you box yourself in and you set up a system where you can never, ever compromise or give in or never look down the road, John, to that next set of reconciliation. Like we didn't get it now, but we could probably get it then. And um, so my hope is that um, uh, that exactly what John expressed is that they'll, they'll, get what we can now. I think they're all terrified about the impact of that next set of votes on the midterms, but but more help for those social service programs uh, is important. Um, it doesn't have to be the biggest change in social service programs as the 3.5 trillion was going to be, uh, for it to be a success for the people who need it, uh, for right. the people that we right. It doesn't, it doesn't have, they don't care what the moniker for it is. They don't care whether it's the greatest of whatever. They need the help and they need it now and communities need the help. So. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, to wrap up here and to ask another loaded question, but can't miss up an opportunity with both of you here. Um, historically, midterm elections often see the president's party lose seats of Congress and frequently 
Well, not always. The president's opposite party opponent gains control of one or both houses of Congress. Knowing the margins that we've been dealing with just this past year, any predictions as to how the conversations, the infighting, the lack of compromise, or hopefully, you know, the Democratic Party not coming together and stop being so divisive will impact uh, midterm elections next year? So I think there's two factors. First, I think um, uh, I think in the House, the, you hit the nail on the head. On like, if we keep this division up, it's going to be harder for the Speaker to keep her coalition together, and um, and it may be harder then to invest in some of these races. I may be in the in the speaking of minority majority. I may be in the minority, but I think we will maintain the House, but by a hair. Uh, and I actually think that factors in the Senate are going to be a couple. Hey, Koopy, come over here. Hey, sorry. He's clinking on the floors. Um, uh, I think the factors are going to be two. What we do with state parties, um, what we did in Georgia was fantastic and, um, and game-changing. And I think if Stacey Abrams runs for governor in Georgia, I think we're going to be able to hold on to Warnock's seat there. Um, I also think the impact um, of the Donald Trump endorsement is going to have a bigger, an, an actual positive impact for Republicans in the House, perhaps, but a negative one uh, in Senate races. And um, so I think I hold out hope, and I don't know the numbers as well as John does, but I hold out hope that we can eke out a very tiny majority in the House and maybe even gain a seat in the in the Senate. I, I wouldn't be willing to bet which one, but um, but that would be my that'd be my guess. I'll take that little bit of optimism, John. Right, yeah. What do you think? It doesn't hurt to be optimistic. If it turns out to be bad, then I'll, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, I think it's a picture of today that you have to be careful with because um, discord is all around, and and so a lot of the pundits are saying uh, they're so divided, and the Republicans have such a position and redistricting, etc. It's really a picture in October of twenty one. You know, I'm more interested in what the picture looks like next May, right. something like that, and and that because I think that's just more realistic. I think that there are terrific opportunities for Democrats in the Senate, uh, legit, doable, and uh, quite possibly vulnerable in a couple of places, but maybe not as vulnerable. And Steve had a good point about uh, Georgia that maybe not quite as vulnerable as people might think today. The House is, you know, it's 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 tough. Um, there's a lot to shake off from 20. You know, did very well in 18, not so good in 20. Uh, and now, of course, you have redistricting and you're going to have to, you know, come up, uh, come up with a game plan to deal with some of those uh, redrawn lines. So I, I don't, I'm not the opposite of Steve, but I, I prefer to take it as a picture today and then think ahead to next May, June and where we are in that process. As I say, you know, we, uh, so many things could happen. I mean, come on. Yeah. And we're 13 months away from a general election. There's right. going to be a lot of primaries. That will change the story. Uh, as John said, the redistricting will change the story. Um, the economy is going to change the story. Yeah. Uh, where we are on COVID-19 is going to change the story. Um, uh, I feel, you know, by by six months from now, will we have reached um, herd immunity? Probably not, but we'll be closer to 70, 75% probably on, on vaccines. Uh, will we still be talking about vaccine mandates by then? Probably not, um, but who knows? Um, and so all of the hot button issues that currently are being stoked on the right, um, a lot of them may be better off for the left by then, but 
but but who knows? I I like that that phraseology, John. I'm gonna use that from now on. It's a picture of today versus what's gonna happen down the road. So um, it allows you also you it allows you also to prognosticate and have no responsibility for that um, that, that prognostication. That was that was the idea. <laughs> that was exactly the idea. <laughs> Geez, John, how do you think it's going to go? Eh, well, I don't know. Today, <laughs> well, on, on that optimistic note, I would just like to say, Steve, thank you again for your time. This is really enjoyable, and hopefully, we'll be able to uh, chat with you again soon. I love it. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Love, love you, Steve. Love to take you. All right. Be well. Be well.